From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life explores religion, social justice, public life, all kinds of things. This broadcast will air around Easter, so happy Easter! I remember as a boy sitting in church on Easter and hearing the preacher with all the certainty he could muster proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning. It was a fact. A fact as certain as the existence of North Dakota. Unless you believed in that historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, it wasn't going to go well for you in the afterlife. And even as a kid, that seemed like a high bar for me. That's a lot to believe in on a Sunday morning when it's finally starting to warm up outside and I'd much rather be out there than sitting on this pew inside this little church getting screamed at about the fate of the corpse of Jesus. It's rather odd that I went into religion being such a skeptic and all, but maybe I wanted to find a way to believe or to find something to believe. I liked Jesus, and I still do, but I didn't think those preachers had him right. All the rising from the dead and what all seemed to miss the point, to me at least. It's nice to know that when you're an oddball and when you question what everyone else seems so certain about, that you aren't the only one. So for all you skeptics, a little overwhelmed by all of the certainty on Easter, this show's for you. My guest is Bart Ehrman. He's the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Four of his books have been on the New York Times bestseller list, Misquoting Jesus, God's Problem, Jesus Interrupted, and Forged. His latest is How Jesus Became God, the Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. Welcome back to Religion for Life, Professor Aaron. Thanks for having me. Uh, last time on this program, we discussed your book, Did Jesus Exist? Uh, that book uh, was a response to some assertions that have been made that Jesus was a completely mythical figure, and your answer was, yes, he was an historical person, and we can know a few things about him. He was an apocalyptic Jewish prophet, executed by Roman Empire, as were many. Yet, over the course of time, this particular individual became recognized by those who believed in him as the second person of the Trinity uh, and God. And so this book, this current book, is about that journey. But let's, let's start with the man. Uh, who, who was the historical Jesus? Can you give us a sketch? Well, yeah, I can give you uh, the, the, uh, the brief version. <laughs> um, I think everybody who studies the historical Jesus from a scholarly point of view agrees that Jesus was a a Jew living in Palestine, who was a uh, who was a preacher. Um, the majority of critical scholars agree that his preaching was about the coming kingdom of God. Um, in in line with what other Jewish uh, preachers and teachers were saying in his day, Jesus thought that this world was controlled by forces of evil, uh, but that God was soon going to intervene to overthrow the forces of evil and set up a good kingdom on earth. 
uh, and that this was going to happen soon, probably within his own generation. And so that's why uh, scholars have called Jesus an apocalyptic prophet, because he was preaching the coming apocalypse, the coming judgment of God against this world. This message, of course, ended up um, um, getting him into trouble, and uh, when he made the trip to Jerusalem the last week of his, his life, he um, he proclaimed this message, and the authorities, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, were upset with, with this, and uh, they arranged to have him arrested, and eventually then, of course, he was crucified. And your view of Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet is the dominant view among critical scholars, correct? I mean, you're not, yours is not a minority view. No, no, this is the view that's been around for over a century. The, the first one to really popularize it was Albert Schweitzer, uh, famous for other reasons, but he was most famous in New Testament circles for his book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus, where he, he paints this portrait of Jesus. And since Schweitzer's day, the majority of scholars in uh, both North America and Europe have held this view. And so that kind of brings me to this this current book. Um, I received in the mail another book, critical of, of your book. Your book is controversial in some way or another, How Jesus Became God. Would you say that this current book, How Jesus Became God, is controversial? Well, apparently it is, because, as you said, somebody has already written a book against it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so there, there's a controversy, uh, even at the point of its being published. And so this other book that's written against my book is uh, called, somewhat unsurprisingly, uh, How God Became Jesus. <laughs> and uh-huh. so uh, it's, it's a collection of essays by four evangelical Christian scholars who take issue with the uh, views I set forth in my book. And so... You know, and I think that's all to the good, because it means that um, it can get people thinking and talking about what strikes me as one of the most important questions, not just in Christianity, but in the history of our form of civilization. Uh, without, without the claim that Jesus became God, we wouldn't have had Christianity, and without Christianity, our entire world would be different. So it's, a, it's an extremely important issue, and I think it's, it's okay to have controversies about how it happened. Well, you know, when I was at, at Princeton, both both of us attended the same seminary, and I remember taking a course on the historical development of Christology. Uh, Carl Froelich was the professor. It was I don't know, was he there when you were there? He was. He was one of my professors and one of, was one of the most brilliant human beings that I've ever known. Well, I really enjoyed that class, and he, and he traced the development of Christology throughout the early church, and he'd talk about God, Jesus needing to go up and then down, you know, with the Trinity and Christology. Yes. And, and and so Princeton is no, you know, it's a neo-Orthodox uh, seminary. I mean, it, it, that's in a sense what I get when I'm reading your book. You are developing or showing, you have offered some different insights in, in many ways, but really it's, it's the story of the historical development of Christology, isn't it? That's right. It's the development of Christology. And I, th- I think I think the reason that some Christians might find it controversial is because I'm, I mount a sustained argument that Jesus did not consider himself to be God mm. and didn't proclaim himself to be God, but that this idea that he was divine came about after his death. And um, in, in one reason many Christians might find that um, unsettling is because in the New Testament itself, in the Gospel of John at least, Jesus does declare himself to be divine. And so I have to explain why the Gospel of John is portraying Jesus from a theological point of view, but not from a historical point of view. And again, you're right. I mean, among scholars, that's not particularly uh, controversial. 
um, it's, that's been a view that's been around for a very long time. And uh, there's a great deal of difference uh, between how Jesus was understood as divine, uh, between the documents of the New Testament itself. You mentioned the Gospel of John, uh, but that's quite a bit different than, say, the letter of James. Absolutely. And, you know, they're both different from the Gospel of Mark, and, and they're, all three of them are different from, the, from, from the, the beliefs of the Apostle Paul. That's another thing in my book that I think uh, may be controversial to, for some people, that um, I argue that the Christological views, meaning the, the views of Jesus, found in different authors, uh, these views are different, and sometimes they're irreconcilably different. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that Paul's understanding of Jesus was at all what, um, what you know, John's understanding of Jesus was, for example, or what Mark's understanding was. And some of those, maybe you can just detail a little bit of some of those differences. Um, how is Jesus understood differently in Mark, say, than John? Well, so part of what I do in my book is I, I provide some back, background to this discussion by asking the question, how, how did ancient people understand that a human being could be also a divine being? This, this was a question in the ancient world, more so than today, because today, for most of us, the only miracle-working Son of God that's ever existed is Jesus. But in antiquity, uh, Greeks, Romans, and Jews understood that there were a number of people who were both human and divine at the same time. And uh, there were actually three different ways that that could happen, and I lay all this out in the book. Sometimes, some, sometimes a person, a human being, was, uh, because of his uh, superior uh, intelligence or strength or power, uh, was exalted uh, after death to be a divine being, uh, taken up to heaven and made, made a god. Um, sometimes uh, a divine being, a god, would come down and have sex with a woman, and the offspring then would be both human and divine. So those are two ways. And the third way is that sometimes a god would become a human temporarily. So these are three ways that it was understood in antiquity that a person could be both human and divine. And all three of these ways are applied to Jesus in the, in the New Testament. The Gospel of Mark understands that Jesus became the Son of God when he got baptized, that God adopted him to be son, his son at the point of his baptism. And so that's what I call an exaltation Christology, that, that the human Jesus is exalted to a divine level because he's adopted by God the Father himself. Uh, the Gospel of John has a different understanding. In John's understanding, Christ pre-existed as coming into the world, and he was incarnated. So he, he came down from heaven as a divine being to be temporarily human. Uh, so that's the second way that uh, that Jesus is divine. And the Gospel of Luke uh, has a third way, which is unlike the other two. In the Gospel of Luke, the reason Jesus is the Son of God is because the Spirit of God makes Mary pregnant. And so Luke explicitly says that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, and for that reason, her offspring will be called the Son of God. So, so these are three different ways of understanding the, the three, these are the three basic ways of understanding how Jesus could be God if he was also human. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Bart Ehrman, who is the Distinguished Professor 
of uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the author of a new book called How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. And he became understood to be God fairly recent or fairly soon after his death. Yeah, that's that's uh, one of my overarching theses. Um, and I have to say, this is a position that I changed my mind on in doing my work for this book. Uh, I, You know, I thought about Christology for years and years and years. Um, but there were some things I didn't quite I didn't quite understand until I did this, the hardcore research for this book. And and what I came to, to realize is that the resurrection of Jesus was absolutely the key to his being called divine. Um, and what I lay out in the book is the, the evidence of this, that the very first Christians, the followers of Jesus, his lifetime disciples, when they came to believe he got raised from the dead, they concluded that he had been taken up into heaven. Um, I mean, he, he, was, he wasn't dead anymore, but he's also not here anymore. So they, he would appear, appear on occasion, but, but he, he wasn't physically here preaching in Galilee or, or in controversies with Pharisees or doing—he he was gone. Well, where is he? He's in heaven. And once an ancient person would say that a human being was taken up into heaven, they thought that the person had been divinized, been made divine. And that's exactly what the first followers of Jesus thought, that at his resurrection he'd been made a divine human being. And and so the, the key is not so much the resurrection of Jesus, but the belief in the resurrection that propelled Jesus toward divinity. That's absolutely right, because if Jesus had been raised from the dead and nobody had come to believe it, then we wouldn't have Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's the belief in the resurrection. And the thing about the belief in the resurrection is that a historian can say that the followers of Jesus certainly came to believe he was raised from the dead, and the historian doesn't have to say that it's because he was raised from the dead. Um, you can believe something, whether it's true or not. And so this this explanation for how Jesus became God works, whether the historian is a Christian or a non-Christian. Uh, the Christian historian might say, well, Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appeared to his disciples. The non-Christian historian would say, um, Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples believed he was raised from the dead, possibly because they had visions of him after his death. Uh, so that either way, this explanation works for, for all kinds of historians. And you end up having to have this conversation quite a bit, uh, this challenge between uh, the confusion, I said, say, between history and faith. Uh, for example, on Easter Sunday, folks who go to church likely, likely will hear a sermon about how the resurrection is an historical fact, and believing that fact is all important, um, which for some of us uh, kind of misses the whole point. Um, so, uh, but approaching, as you mentioned, approaching the resurrection as an historian doesn't necessarily mean one faith belief or another. That's right. And I, what, what I do in the book is I explain the reasons that the early followers came to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I think these reasons work whether the historian is a Christian or not. And the reason actually, as I, as I found out in my research, once again, I changed my mind about this, the idea that people came to believe because they found an empty tomb is absolutely wrong, I think. Um, I should point out that in the New Testament, nobody who finds the empty tomb thinks, therefore, Jesus has been raised from the dead. What they think is that they're at the wrong tomb, or that somebody's moved the body, or that there's grave robbers or something. But the empty, an empty tomb wouldn't do it. 
The reason people came to believe Jesus was raised from the dead is that some of them had visions of him afterwards. And so I devote a chapter to my book about what we know about visions, because it turns out that one out of eight people has some kind of visionary experience, uh, a hallucination. And the two most common kinds of hallucinations are hallucinations of uh, deceased loved ones and of revered religious figures. And of course, Jesus was both. He was a revered. He was a. He was. Uh, he was a loved one who had been lost, and he was uh, a highly respected religious teacher. So I talk about what we know about visions of these of this kind in the modern world, and see what we can say about the disciples' visions then of Jesus. You know that that question does puzzle me about why Jesus. I mean, there certainly were other religious figures who were revered, other apocalyptic prophets. I wonder what was the perfect storm that uh, caused the disciples to have visions and then later to think that he had become risen? Yes, it's a great question. And, you know, like a lot of really great historical questions, there's not an easy answer. I think, I mean, I think we can say why it did happen in the case of Jesus, but I don't think we can answer why it did not happen in the case of, say, John the Baptist or someone else. Hmm. Um, But in the case of Jesus, I think, um, well, you know, I lay this all out in the book, but but the followers of Jesus um, had expected him to be a great Messiah, uh, and it turned out he wasn't. Uh, he, he didn't set up God's kingdom. He didn't overthrow the enemy. He didn't destroy the forces aligned against God. He got crushed by the forces aligned against God. Uh, he, got, he got executed, humiliated, tortured in a very public way. And his disciples felt, as according to the Bible itself, they felt considerable guilt about this. Um, so um, people like that, who feel guilt over the tragic death of a loved one, sometimes have visions of them afterwards in which the person appears to them and comforts them and tells them that it's all right. And that, that's what happened in the case of some of the disciples. Some of them had a vision of Jesus, and on that basis they concluded what people always conclude when they have a vision of a deceased loved one, that the person's still alive. But since these were apocalyptic Jews, they didn't think that Jesus' soul had gone to heaven. Apocalyptic Jews believed that the afterlife was a bodily existence, that the body would be raised from the dead. And so if Jesus was alive for these people, that meant he must have been bodily raised. And once they began to think that, that, that's the beginning of Christianity. And the ball just started rolling from there. It started rolling, and it rolled for a very long time. Part of my book is about how this ball rolled on for another three or four hundred years before there was any widespread consensus about the sense in which Jesus is God. Uh, at the beginning, everybody, you know, most of the followers of Jesus agreed that he was God in a certain sense, but as time went on and they had debates about in what sense, uh, it, it took a long while before there was widespread agreement about uh, how it is that Jesus is God. Well, let's just take a second and go into the second and third centuries. So what are the church fathers and, and those who ended up being branded as heretics arguing about uh, regarding the divinity of Jesus? Well, there were there were lots of things. I mean, there are some things focused on the person of Jesus and some things focused on the status of God. And so with respect to Jesus, if you want to say that Jesus is is, is divine, then what does that do to his humanity? I mean, how can a human be God any more than a human can be a rock? I mean, they're different things. 
And so Christians had to work out how it is that he could be both at once, or is it that he was one at one time and one at another time? Is that he was 50% God and 50% human? I mean, how, how does it work? And they ended up declaring that the, the final solution was that he was fully God and fully man at one and the same time, um, which, of course, is, I mean, technically speaking, that's probably impossible, but the best theologians say that it's a, it's a mystic, it's a mystery, uh, so that it's a, mystery, a theological mystery that can't be fully understood with the mind. With respect, to, with respect to God, the problem was that if Jesus is God and God the Father is God, don't you have two gods? And if you throw the Holy Spirit into it, then don't you have three gods? And so Christians had to wrestle with how you could have three distinct beings, all of whom are God, and yet have only one God. And it's out of that set of discussions that the, that the Trinity emerged. And so the, the final chapter or so in my book, I talk about how, how the, the traditional doctrine of the Trinity emerged out of these debates. Bart Ehrman, my guest, author of How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. I, you mentioned that they, they came to a final solution, but there's a sense in which this idea of Jesus and God hasn't ever been settled, has it? Or Well, um, <laughs> there, there were church councils in early Christianity that talked about such issues. The first one was the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. And in that council, contrary to what people seem to think, this council did not vote on whether Jesus would be seen as God or not. Um, this council, everybody, all the bishops at this council, this worldwide council at Nicaea, they all agreed that Jesus was God. The only question was, in what sense is he God? And there were some, there were some who thought that he was God because in the remote past, God had created a divine being, his son, and the son of God then created the universe so that Jesus Christ was a um, a divine being who came into existence at some point in the past and was subordinate to God the Father. There were others who said, no, uh, Christ has always existed. There never was a time when he did not exist. And, and he's equal with God the Father. He's not a lesser subordinate divinity. He's equal, fully equal with God. So they debated that out, and this latter view is the one that won. But that didn't solve the issues because people still had questions and still had debates. And so there were further councils. Uh, and 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 further resolutions, and you know I think it's safe to say that most Christians today don't follow closely these debates of the third uh, of the uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth century yeah, that's what I was thinking. councils. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm thinking today uh, it's it's hard to even understand the differences, and they're, they're so. <laughs> well, the debates were very nuanced and sophisticated, and at a at a deep theological level that frankly most Christians today aren't all that interested in. I want to go back uh, to the New Testament again, and this one one of the most puzzling titles in the Gospels is is the Son of Man or the Son of the Man, and and Jesus uses that title quite often. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head, or the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, or in Matthew twenty five that you talk about in your book, the Son of Man will return on the clouds to judge people. Who was this Son of Man uh, from the point of view of Jesus? Yeah, as it turns out, this is one of the most complicated issues in all of New Testament studies. Uh, scholars have devoted very fat books to just this one question. <laughs> it's complicated. So Jesus does talk about the Son of Man a lot in the Gospels, and sometimes he's clearly referring to himself. You know, when he says the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the scribes and elders and be crucified and then raised on the third day. You know, he, he is talking about himself there, calling himself the mm -hmm. Son of Man. 
There are other sayings in the Gospels where Jesus is not so obviously talking about himself. Uh, in Mark 8:38, when he says that uh, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, of that person the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes on the clouds of heaven. So if you didn't already think that Jesus was the Son of Man, you would have no reason to think so from that saying. It sounds like he's talking about someone else. Yeah. And so what scholars have wrestled with is, which of these sayings were the ones that Jesus actually said? Uh, did he say all of them, or just some of them? If some of, some of them, which ones? What I argue in my book is that these sayings that Jesus seems to differentiate between himself and the Son of Man are not sayings that any Christian would invent and put on his lips, because Christians thought he was the Son of Man. And so I think Jesus originally talked about this Son of Man as a cosmic judge of the earth, based on a passage in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, which talks about one like a son of man who will be a cosmic judge of the earth. Jesus expected this cosmic judge to come from heaven, and after the, the disciples came to believe that he had been raised from the dead, that they thought he was in heaven and that he was coming back. And so they naturally thought that he himself was the son of man. And so when they started telling Jesus' teachings, they had him identify himself as the Son of Man because that's whom they believed he was. And of course, but for him himself, he's thinking of, of he never thought of himself as divine or the no. Son of Man. No, I don't think so. I think I think quite clearly, I, th I think it's very clear Jesus did not call himself divine in any sense. Mm -hmm. um, but that that was that was later um, an understanding of him from the Christians. And that understanding affected how they talked about his teachings. One final question for you. We're just about out of time. We have a minute or so left. But I, I wanted to ask about this. You wrote in, in the epilogue that, that your journey uh, mirrored the Christological journey in a reverse way. As Jesus went up to become God, for you personally over the years, he's come down. Uh, and, and, and I would say you're not alone on that journey. Many people are interested, including myself, in the historical Jesus, the human being uh, before all of the divinity. And, and many people, even those not interested in Christian belief, find this Jesus interesting. Uh, if I ask you a personal question, what do you find interesting and perhaps worth emulating about Jesus? Well, you know, I think that, you know, I, I think that Jesus was principally concerned with his apocalyptic message. Mm -hmm. about this coming kingdom of God. But Jesus also taught his disciples that they should begin emulating what life is going to be like in that kingdom. And so there'll be no sickness in the kingdom, and so they're to heal the sick now. Uh, there'll be no loneliness in the kingdom, so people are to visit the lonely now. Uh, there'll be no hatred in the kingdom, so people are supposed to love one another now. There'll be no war in the kingdom, so people should be peacemakers now. I think that those ethical guidelines... Um, can be translated from that apocalyptic context into our own our, into our own context. That living life in this world isn't really just a matter of grabbing for all the pleasure you can get, or uh, seeking advancement or promotion or prestige or status. It's also living for one another and helping out our uh, fellow men and women. And so I uh, I believe that that for me personally that's that's the kind of ethic I I want to replicate in my life. And so, and it's a teaching that's very clearly on the, the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. Very good. Uh, Bart Ehrman, my guest, uh, author of an excellent book that I encourage you all to pick up, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. Professor Ehrman, thank you for your time and for this book.
Well, thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you. We are the youth of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You have been listening to Religion for Life. Your host is John Shook. He's our minister. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Come visit us. You can find more information about this program and links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Twitter, like us on Facebook, listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETSFM, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHCFM, Emory, Virginia. Be well!